Hello and welcome to the official College of Policing podcast. My name is Rob Flanagan and every episode I'll be joined by frontline officers and experts to discuss the issues affecting policing in England and Wales today. This episode is dedicated to the issue of officer safety, a topic that has always been important to officers at every level of policing and has become especially prominent since 2020, following the tragic death of PC Andrew Harper and his wife's campaign for Andrew's Law. We will hear from people directly impacted and affected as a result of police assaults. Our team of experts will break down the statistics to illustrate the current picture of officer safety in England and Wales. We will also share how policing bodies across the sector are united in bringing in a new range of measures designed to both protect police officers and staff through increased support and wellbeing initiatives, alongside new work focused upon harsher prosecutions for those who use violence against those working on the front line. We are joined today by Sergeant Tom Dorman of Thames Valley Police. We are extremely grateful for Tom agreeing to spend some time with us and chat with me about the circumstances of the 2nd of September 2018. During this time, Tom and his colleague were on routine uniform patrol in Maidenhead and stopped to speak to a taxi driver. The circumstances surrounding what happened next are quite frankly horrifying. Tom, thank you for speaking with me today. It's really, really hard to know where we start with this. And I am really pleased that you agreed to share your experiences and also to chat with me. So thank you very much. But before we do go there, Tom, just tell me a little bit about yourself. When did you join the police and what's your current role? So I'm currently a police sergeant based in the control room. I've been in the job for about seven and a half years now. My granddad was a special a long time ago, so he'd always tell me stories. And then it wasn't really anything I thought of until I kind of got to my early 20s. And then I'd worked as a manager in supermarkets and wanted something a little bit different and thought, what can I do that's totally different? Policing was kind of the exact opposite of walking into work and never knowing from one day to the next exactly what you're going to be doing. Up until September 2018, I'd solely been on response, doing that kind of mixture of low-level investigations and that initial response. A couple of years before that, I'd done my public order course and about 18 months before I became a, a public order medic. And that was probably one of the, the biggest things that has changed my life, really, actually having that understanding of that advanced level of first aid. That had given me ambitions to become a public order kind of trainer and tactical advisor and then move on at some point to get promoted to kind of become a bronze commander. Now, I want to go back with you to September the 2nd, 2018. Take your time. I know it's not going to be easy. But in your own words, describe for me the circumstances leading up to the moment where your life was changed forever. Yeah, so was out with my crewmate. We were just driving around on the way back to the station just before half five in the morning and we spotted a taxi that was driving a little bit quickly. We stopped the taxi on a quite quiet residential road. We both out the car, just having a conversation with the taxi driver through his driver's window. Whilst we stood there, a Ford Focus comes under a railway bridge out of control crash into both my colleague and 
I sending us both flying, colliding with the taxi, and then colliding with our marked police car before managing to roll onto its side. The driver then gets out of the car, runs away, effectively leaving myself, my colleague, his three passengers, including his twin brother and the taxi driver, pretty much for dead. It doesn't appear that he put a thought at all into what happened before he climbed out the driver's window and ran away. My colleague and I were both lying on the floor, both unable to move. I quickly realised that I had a catastrophic bleed from my left leg, which was something that we'd kind of done a lot of training on in the um, my public order medic training, application of tourniquets, using hemostatic gauze to slow the bleeds, basically. When officers from my team have gotten seen, which, as you can imagine, wasn't particularly long afterwards, I've managed to explain to them how to improvise a tourniquet around my leg. And then, fortunately, after the improvised tourniquet had managed to slow the bleed slightly, my inspector at the time arrived on scene and managed to find my medic bag and then apply a proper cat tourniquet. Truly amazing stuff there, Tom. I'm still trying to get my head around that the whole immediate aftermath. But let's turn our attention now to the unfolding next few days and eventually months of what happened to Tom Dorman. So take us through the next, say, 24, 48 hours after. So I remember making some really sarcastic comment towards the doctors about which leg was injured once once we got to A&E and then remember absolutely nothing until half past eight in the evening where I've come round from what I now know to be 10 hours of surgery. Once I've, well, I can't really remember being told that I lost my leg, but that was, that was the outcome. I lost my leg below my knee on my left side. The doctors tried many different things, including vein grafts from my arm to try and restore the blood flow to my left leg and foot. Um, But sadly, it was decided that it wasn't viable. The biggest fear was that they were going to have to amputate my leg above the knee. The position that they amputated was about as high below the knee as they could do. So certainly for the first 10 to 12 days, it was quite a large question mark over how the wound would survive and actually whether they would have to amputate higher. Once that fear has kind of been allayed and they've decided that actually the wound can stay where it is, that then start to look actually all the millions of changes that are going to have to happen, i.e. how to even wheel myself in a wheelchair and all those thousands of things that you don't ever really think about. And I can imagine, Tom, that even something like contemplating how you're going to use a wheelchair is something that you're not going to adjust to quickly. I was suddenly thrust into this whole new world of things that I was, I suppose, blissfully ignorant to. The struggles that people with disabilities kind of face every day, that unless you or someone that you know is disabled, that you don't ever think about all these things that you kind of take for granted. 
suddenly become infinitely harder. And eventually that time would have come where you were ready to leave hospital and return home. So just tell me a little bit about what leaving the hospital and going home was like. I was straight back at Upper Hayford, our public order training centre that evening. They were doing a evening scenario refresher. I decided that I wanted to go up and try and get back to some form of normality immediately. So went and watched people get petrol bombed. Hang on, Tom. Within hours of leaving the hospital, you're back in work and you're now watching the public order training. Is that right? Yeah, to be fair, it was literally like three hours after I left hospital. I'd missed being petrol bombed. The incident happened several days before my refresher. So I'd, I'd missed my refresher. I wanted to go and watch some other people. <laughs> and I suppose that's one of those things that only those who've been police officers will completely understand the joy of being petrol bombed. Yeah, I know. It, everyone has that weird reaction of, you like that. And well, yeah. In that initial period, how was the support from your colleagues? How was the support from the organisation itself? The support was really, really good. Within a couple of days, the chief constable at the time, Sir Francis Habgood, came to see me and had a long conversation. He was there because he cared. And it was the same with a lot of people from within the force that despite the fact that there were some that I'd never met before, that it kind of showed that real family mentality of actually one of us has been injured and we look out for our colleagues because we're all a family. I've kind of had quite a lot of involvement with with two particular charities that are related to the police, both in very different ways. Through the Federation, the Federation recommended that I contacted Police Care. They gave me a grant to buy a wheelchair, which was much more suited to my purpose and gave me a much higher level of independence. And then Police Care have also gave me a grant for a stairlift, which again is one of those little things that until you need one, you don't really appreciate it. But having had nine months nearly of going up the stairs on my backside, a stairlift was like an absolute life-changing moment. And then the other charity who I've had an awful lot of support from, the Pilgrim Bandits, they're brilliant because you can go away with them with groups of people that are suffering similar issues and you kind of, you almost build like a little family. So I went to Devon and that was that was brilliant for me because that was the first time that I'd properly spent time with other amputees who were of a similar mindset. I just had that time to sit and kind of talk to them and go over common problems that are quite difficult to kind of discuss with someone who's not an amputee because they don't, I suppose, get it. I did things that I didn't think I'd ever be able to do with my prosthetics. I'm not a big fan of heights, but ended up going up a climbing wall inspired by an amputee who went up without his prosthetic on. So I thought, oh, I can do that. (laughs) Got to the top of the climbing wall with just one leg, which was essentially a series of pull-ups, which was great. And it was just great to spend that time kind of away from civilization. And it was a really good kind of mentality of having that time and support in a little bubble, I suppose. They sound like fantastic experiences, Tom. Ones which made a huge difference to you at a time when you needed the most. I would like to know just how important they were to you. How much of an impact did the experiences and the support and the help that you got from these organisations, how much of an impact did they make on your return to frontline policing? 
I think they were massive because without the support from the organisation and seeing just how willing they were to, I suppose, work to get me back. So they agreed that I could go and work in within our public order training department for a while, which then meant they had to do adaptations to there so I could use my wheelchair and things like that. They made it feel like it wasn't a burden, it wasn't an issue, that it made me feel like I was wanted back. Now, one of the things that it's easy to forget here, Tom, is that you were a victim of crime. And so as such, there was still an investigation ongoing for the offender in this incident. From your perspective, Tom, what was the level of support that you got in the investigation like from the organisation in which you work? And I would like to know as a victim of crime, first and foremost, how you felt that investigation went. Throughout the investigation, the the investigating team were really good. Whilst I was in hospital, I was allocated to family liaison officer between my FLO and the investigation team. I was told as much as any other victim could be, which was good, and treated us as victims. I say that because I know it's really easy to do. When you look at a police officer as a victim, often they don't get treated as a victim. I think a lot of the time it's quite easy to forget that, especially with those lower level assaults, that we've still got the victim's code and we still need to do those things that you would for any other victim. Just because the victim's a police officer doesn't mean that you don't need to update them and things like that. Now, Tom, I understand that it's hard for anyone to speak about this, but what I'm really interested in is the impact on your well-being. Certainly to begin with, I was almost probably quite arrogant about mental health implications of the incident that I'd been through in that my attitude is very much, well, I don't remember it, so I can't have PTSD. But then actually nearly two and a half years down the line, I've realised just how wrong that is. Certainly for the first kind of six months, eight months, I was loving life as such and just kind of getting on with it. And then after that time, it's where I think I probably started to develop PTSD. Probably the last six or 12 months is where I've started to feel a lot worse and it's become much more of a struggle. I think that like many other people, I'm probably quite good at hiding it. I certainly go to work and spend eight, nine, ten hours seeming positive, talking to people, being happy, etc. But then I certainly find, and I know others do as well, that it's almost like you kind of have a certain a cup of energy and then once that's you've used all that, then that's it. And I feel a lot worse than I portray. I'm, I'm not ashamed that, to say that I'm not okay because I'm not. And all of that time that you had off work, Tom, recovering trying to get yourself fit and healthy and trying to mentally prepare for what will eventually be, as you've said, hopefully a return to policing and a return to frontline policing. Tell us more about how you prepared for that. I made use of the time quite productively after losing my leg where I managed to revise for the science exam and successfully passed that kind of six months after losing my leg. And then in July 2019, I was given the opportunity to go and do some acting on a response team and then basically acted until May 2020, where I then was successful in promotion and got my current role in the control room. And I can't rate my current job enough because it gives me about as close to operational as I can do. A big part of my job is 
as a pursuit manager, I, I have to kind of review those and make those fast time spontaneous decisions, which often carry quite a lot of risk. But it certainly gives me that kind of that adrenaline rush that you'd get as a frontline officer going out to those jobs. And during this show, Tom, we're going to be speaking to people who are very senior in policing and government who will be looking at the issue of officer safety and officer well-being. And I just wonder from your perspective, going through what you have been through and being able to come from a position of authority in your experiences, what would your message to the organisation be? What would your message to any line manager or senior officer within policing around how they can improve the level of support they give to police officers and staff every day? Treat those injured officers and staff as you would treat any other victim of crime. Like I've said, it's very easy to not do that. But I think it's key that you need to feel like you're a victim If you are a victim, you need to be treated like that. And there's no doubt, Tom, that your story will inspire a lot of police officers and staff up and down the country. And I'm just wondering if you have a message for anybody out there who may be going through something similar to you were at some point between 2018 and now. Persevere with it. It often does get better. There's so many different support methods out there. I spoke about to but actually if you speak to your federation they're brilliant at signposting you that's how i found out about police care and pilgrim bandits one of the ways for the college of policing to support its members is to collaborate with others to gather evidence and present the findings upon the most important issues affecting frontline staff For officer safety, this was done through the Officer Staff Safety Review. We welcome to the show now Paul Quinton. Paul works at the College of Policing as the Evidence and Evaluation Advisor. Paul and his team have been leading the research into officer safety at the College of Policing, and I'm really pleased to say that Paul joins us now. So tell me about your role at the college and how this supports policing. So I'm a policing researcher and I've been doing research on the police for just over 20 years now. I joined the college when it was first created, having previously worked in the National Policing Improvement Agency and the Home Office. And at the college, I'm what's called an evidence and evaluation advisor in the Uniform Policing Faculty. So what that really means is I'm an embedded researcher within that faculty and it's it's my job, I suppose, to ensure that the work of the faculty, whether that's developing new pieces of guidance or new learning products, to make sure that those things are based on the best available evidence, whether that's social research evidence or on the views and experiences of frontline practitioners. We're talking about officer safety, and I know you have been involved in some important work for this, namely the Officer Staff Safety Review. Could you tell me how this came about and what the aim of this survey was? So in September 2019, the MPCC chair, Martin Hewitt, announced there was going to be a national review of officer and staff safety. Now, that was partly because in the summer, just before, there had been some really awful incidents that had really kind of pricked people's consciousness. But also there was some evidence of an increase, quite a marked increase, in fact, of 
assaults against police officers and staff. The officer and staff safety review was really there to assess the arrangements that were in place for managing those sorts of safety issues, drawing on the, the best available evidence. And its aim was really to come up with a series of recommendations for chiefs that were designed to reduce the risks to those on the front line of being injured, assaulted or even killed. What was your role in all of this, Paul? Well, I had been asked to lead the evidence work stream. So it was really my responsibility to identify and review all the published social research evidence that was available on issues to do with officer and staff safety, whether that's to do with national trends, the impact of training, the effectiveness of personal protective equipment. The scope is very broad, but like very many areas of policing research, there's kind of big, big gaps in the evidence base. One thing that I was really keen to do is to listen to the people on the front line. And so what became a really critical part of my work stream. And I think the review overall was the survey that we carried out. And what was the point of the survey? What were you trying to find out? It was really important that we tried to find out about their feelings of safety, their experience of being assaulted on duty, what supervisors had done if they had been assaulted, what happened then if they'd reported their assault and there'd been some sort of criminal justice process but also other issues like what did people think of the personal safety training they received and about the equipment that they were given. One of the criticisms I hear often about surveys especially staff ones is that you never get the right people responding to them or that you get such a low response that it doesn't really represent the actual views of staff so how did you deal with that for this perspective because this is a really important issue isn't it? The way we did the survey was to email a link to an online questionnaire to everybody who had registered on the online learning area, the managed learning environment that the college owns. And I'd assumed that we'd get maybe a couple of thousand responses, which would have been absolutely fine for the purposes of the review. But we ended up getting 40,000 responses from a whole range of different people in the service including police officers, members of police staff, including PCSOs and volunteers as well. So overall, we think we received responses from about 20% of all serving police officers and over 25% of PCSOs, which is absolutely tremendous. And what will this information be able to tell us, Paul, and to tell you about police assaults that we didn't know already? What's really striking about all of this, I think, is that it's so difficult to get a sense of how big a problem assaults against the police really is. And that's partly because we just have such little data. And the data we do have isn't very reliable, really, and certainly doesn't give us a complete picture. First of all, we have assaults without injury on a constable. And the data there's not bad, and it goes back to about 2002, 2003. And the general overall pattern with assaults without injury is that there was a kind of gradual decline after recording had started till about um, 2013. In the five years since then, we've seen quite a marked increase. There were just over 14,000 recorded assaults in 2014, 2015. And in 2018, 2019, that number had risen to just over 20,000. So an increase of almost 50% in about five years. Now, some of that increase... It's going to be genuine, but also some of it will be 
down to better reporting and recording as forces start to take assaults against the police more seriously. But behind each of those figures sits a human being, even though it's really important that we understand the scale of the problem that we just don't forget that there are plenty of stories to be heard. And was the point of the survey then to capture those stories from frontline officers and staff that needed to be heard? Or was this a case of trying to identify evidence of police assaults and officer safety that maybe the official figures didn't provide? The survey we carried out was really helpful in overcoming some of the kind of reliability issues that we had with the police recorded data. So we'd asked all the respondents to the survey whether they'd ever been assaulted on duty. What was really striking was the proportion of police officers that had kind of said that they had. And we found that 88%, so that's pretty much nine in every 10 police officers have said at some point during their career they've been assaulted, which is a staggering number. It really is. And I just wonder how much of that transfers over into other policing roles as well. You've talked about police officers, but what about custody staff, uh, other members of police staff, PCSOs and volunteers working across policing? Do the figures represent those people as well? The overall figure for for police staff was 12%. But within that, we found that 71% of custody and detention officers said they'd been assaulted at some point during their career, which not something we would have previously known about. 79% of them said they'd been assaulted in the last two years, which is a really high rate. And we also found some really high rates of repeat victimisation. So amongst police officers, 41% told us that they had been assaulted more than three times in the last 12 months. And following the same pattern as before, there was a particular pocket of risk amongst custody and detention officers. And we found that about 50% of those said they'd been assaulted at least three times in the past 12 months. And was there any way, Paul, within the survey to actually get into the mindset of some of our officers and staff around the risk of being assaulted and the potential fear or level of fear within our staff around officer and staff safety. The survey really showed us that these experiences really filtered through into the perceptions of our respondent. 66% of police officers said it was fairly or very likely that they would be assaulted over the next 12 months. And we saw some marked differences between different sorts of police officer. So unsurprisingly, response officers were the most likely to think they're at risk and about 93% said it was very fairly likely they would be assaulted on duty. Closely followed by officers in custody, neighbourhoods and roads policing roles, where about 80% said it was very or fairly likely they'd be assaulted in the next 12 months. And we found that about two thirds of police officers and a similar proportion of PCSOs said they were very or fairly worried that they would be assaulted on duty. And I know that leadership was one of those things that came up in the survey. What was it about leadership that came through so strong and why is this important to a survey about officer safety? So we asked respondents who'd been assaulted whether their supervisors had completed an injury at work or safety incident form, or had also discussed or developed a welfare plan the last time they'd been assaulted. We found that half of officers who'd been assaulted said that their supervisors had completed one of those injury or safety forms, and only 17% said their supervisor had discussed or developed a welfare plan. We found that supervisory actions really seemed to filter through to satisfaction levels. Satisfaction rates weren't as high as they probably should be. 
So in total, 54% of officers said that they were very or fairly satisfied. And it's really important to understand that fairly satisfied is not a ringing endorsement. And then there was a a kind of small but notable minority, 11% of officers who said they were dissatisfied. What was interesting to us was that there appeared to be an association between the actions that the supervisor took and satisfaction levels. 91% of officers and PCSOs who had a welfare plan were very or fairly satisfied compared to only 44% of those who didn't. What I would say, though, is that it doesn't mean that simply by filling in a form or developing a welfare plan that someone's necessarily going to be satisfied. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today. You are actually showing us what you're doing with information that is coming directly from frontline officers and staff, which is so important. So thank you. Thank you, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've only really been able to scratch the surface of some of the things that we found, but all of the results are available on the college website if people are interested in in finding out more. And lastly, I just wanted to thank everyone who took part in the survey. I know that everyone's incredibly busy and doing a survey is the last thing you want to do after a shift. So I'm very grateful for people taking part. One of the realities of policing as a frontline officer or member of staff can be exposure to danger. In fact, to some people, danger or exposure to police assaults is seen as part of the job, an operational hazard that officers sign up to when they join the force. However, the service as a whole doesn't see it this way. And while danger can be inevitable, it is never acceptable and police assaults are never just part of the job. Steps are being taken to change this perception. One key step has come as a direct result of the Officer Staff Safety Review. The National Operation Hampshire Project was set up in October 2020 and its work centres around two fundamental beliefs. First and foremost, it is the belief that police officers and staff have the right to and deserve full victim support and care where subjected to an assault. And second, offenders who assault police officers and staff should be held to account and justice should be pursued. The main aim of Op Hampshire is to achieve a more consistent approach when it comes to handling police assaults and to ensure that forces across the UK adopt similar processes. I caught up with Chief Inspector Dave Brewster, who is currently leading on the Operation Hampshire work, to find out more about their ongoing work, their goals and achievements, and their long-term plans. Dave, great to have you join us today, and many thanks for your time. So I'm keen to hear from you about your work on Operation Hampshire. Could you give us an overview of what you're doing, your objectives, and what you hope to deliver? Thanks, Rob. I'm in a really privileged position in so much that I've been seconded away from the Met into the college for a short period of time to help share some of the best practice we learned throughout Hampshire in the Metropolitan Police and also to look at some of the good practices that are already taking place in other UK forces. And the idea behind that is that we, as a whole, as a policing profession, we develop a more consistent approach in how we respond to incidents when our colleagues are assaulted. We know, looking back, that Most forces adopted a seven-point plan, which John Apter developed and introduced back in 2016. But what we now need to do is ensure that there is a structure built around those plans to ensure that they're delivered to the greatest effect. If I can just elaborate on that, 
The very nature of our job as police officers and police staff, and it's really important for me to emphasise this point, that, that this is about police staff as well. We have always focused on the public as the main victims. And rightly so, we provide a service to victims as members of the public. But we also need to start considering ourselves as such and to ensure that we go as far as we can for the well-being of our colleagues. The simple fact is that when they're assaulted on duties, they're victims in their own right. Thanks, Dave. So can you tell me a little bit more about the objectives and the work that you're going to be carrying out through this project? The objectives for Up Hampshire are quite clear. We want a consistently professional approach to assaults in every part of the UK. And so that, you know, if a colleague is assaulted up in, in the north of England and a colleague at the same time is assaulted down in the south, they get a very similar professional level of response. We would like to see a change in culture. You mentioned earlier on that it's often been seen that being assaulted is part of the job, but it isn't. And, and what we want to do is ensure that, that we change that mindset. You know, it isn't part of our job to be assaulted. It's an, it's an occupational hazard. So let's look at this at a local and a practical level. What can police officers and staff expect to see as a result of this work? What we'd like to ensure is that every assault is taken seriously. It's not brushed off. It's not shrugged off. It's not something that we sort of accept and roll with the punches. We take every single assault as a serious incident because it is. It's a criminal act. And so it's important that we take it in that vein. But one of the things we'd like to see is that we start to consider the impact of every assault on the individual. We've got colleagues out there who have been assaulted four or five or six times in a year. And those assaults might not necessarily result in any form of significant injury, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect on someone. And that's part of this the ethos behind what we're trying to achieve here is that we are educating people to start thinking a little bit differently beyond the physical injury itself and look at the impact it has on our colleagues. We need to set a standard, we need to have clear guidance in place and ensure that that guidance and those processes are followed. I just want to dig a little bit deeper on this, and I'll start with the obvious question, Dave, uh, because some people listening will want to know this. They'll be amazed that maybe some of this isn't already in place, but also the main question is, well, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this now? I'm not for one minute saying that there isn't a decent level of welfare support and supervision across the UK. I'm just saying it differs from place to place and from incident to incident. There are some forces that already have some incredibly strong processes and strategies in place. And the idea behind the National Operation Hampshire Project is that we learn from each other because no one has the right answer to this. No one's got the textbook on this. Police officers and police staff have the right to be treated as victims and to receive the support and justice they deserve. If we want the best from our people, and we want them to do the best for the public, then we need to actively look after them. There are a number of other reasons for us to be doing this that legitimise what we're doing. The most recent really is that it complements a couple of recommendations from the Officer and Staff Safety Review, which talk about the importance of supervision and process following an assault on one of our colleagues. So there are a number of reasons behind it some legislative and others really sort of ethical and moral. And certainly some really, really positive steps there that you're talking about. And the thing that really surprised me, and I can actually recall this from my days as a police officer myself, when police officers and staff are sometimes expected to investigate an incident themselves, we can often forget about the impact that an incident can have on someone. And because some would say very often it's the psychological impact that an incident can have 
that has the greatest impact on the officer rather than the physical harm itself. Would that be considered in what Up Hampshire is proposing? Not everyone's willing to talk about how they feel. There are people that they're reluctant to talk about their feelings, particularly when you're talking about stress and anxiety and so on. There is a a stigma attached to it. All we're suggesting, all we're asking for here is that we actually see policing for what it is and understand the pressures and the dynamic that comes with it and the effect that it can have on the people that are doing the job and putting themselves in harm's way for the benefit of the public. So when we look at any national programme of work, we often face the same challenges in policing, and this is almost always relating to the local implementation, such as differences in our equipment or the services that are offered to staff at a local level. So my question is, will Operation Hampshire be looking at this? And if so, are there any examples that you can share of how this challenge is being handled? So the way we're addressing this, or at least uh, approaching it, is by setting up a, a network, a UK network of people that might rank at around sort of Chief Inspector Superintendent rank in every UK constabulary. And what we're doing is we've set up a best practice sort of network where we're discussing all of the relevant elements of Operation Hampshire. Those people are taking that work back out to their forces. They've been nominated by their chief officer group to be the local delivery lead for Op Hampshire. So they're taking that best practice and guidance and advice back to their forces in an attempt to implement them locally. Yes, there will be local differences. It's not going to happen overnight, Rob. We are a a large profession. We're a large organisation or or group of organisations. And, you know, this isn't something that can just happen overnight. It takes a bit of commitment. But I think having a network of like-minded people, particularly to have a network of more or less a representative of every force in the UK involved in this. I think that's quite promising. One of the things that we have seen over the last 12 months is the arrival of COVID-19. And I'm just interested to hear from you, Dave, and your experience during that time of how police assault and incidents and the way in which our own staff have been able to cope with incidents during this time has changed, if it has at all in any way. My very small team, the Up Hampshire team, started monitoring offences from the point of lockdown. We immediately started talking to our colleagues in the Crown Prosecution Service to talk about what legislation we could use to protect our officers or at least hold people to account should they use COVID against us. What we saw over a period of months was a quite a significant increase in coughing and spitting offences. We found there were people purposely coughing in the faces of police officers saying that they'd had COVID and they wanted to infect someone. And it was an absolutely abhorrent thing to do. You know, it's a disgusting thing to do to someone. But it's also, you think about the impact it has on that officer and what they might be taking home to their family, if not physically, then psychologically. So we started tracking all of those offences. And we saw at one point, I think it was around June, we saw that 25% of all assaults on our colleagues in London involved spitting or coughing at that particular time, which is quite significant. One of the things we undertook to do was that every single victim of assault over that period for coughing and spitting was contacted by a member of our team. Thank you so much for joining us today. I wish you all the best with your work. It's obviously needed. I can't wait to see the improvements that you've talked about here today, landing in forces and improving that level of care and support that policing more widely offers to all police officers and staff. This is a really promising and really progressive thing to be involved in. It has support at the highest levels 
within the organisation. We have the full backing of the college, obviously. We have the full backing of the MPCC. The Federation, through John Apter, are incredibly engaged and couldn't be any more supportive than they're being already. We're talking to the unions that represent our police staff through Unison and the PCS. Just about everyone that needs to be involved is engaged. They're absolutely committed. The chief officer group are all on board with this and they've all supplied you know, a nomination to join the network. If ever there was a really good opportunity to make a difference and have the right people involved and engaged in it, it's now. I'm confident that we can really, you know, really make a difference for our colleagues out there. I'm pleased to say that we are now joined by Amanda Tillotson, who is a uniformed superintendent with Kent Police. Amanda has been leading on the work for the Officer Staff Safety Review. We are fortunate Amanda can join us. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you for agreeing to come on to the podcast. Tell me about your role and how that really impacted upon officer safety. This piece of work come about because there was such a vast increase in assaults on officers and our staff that there was very much a need to do a full root and branch review as to why is this happening and what can we do to better protect our officers and staff. My chief constable had approached me to ask if I'd be willing to embark on this work. And of course, absolutely. It's an issue that is really, really close to my heart. I'm really keen to make sure that we give all of our staff and our officers the best protection we possibly can. What did you do with the review when it was completed? You know, what happens behind the scenes when you launch something like the Officer Staff Safety Review? What we did is try and compartmentalise what aspects we wanted to look at. So if I give you a bit of an idea, so we looked at six main areas. What's the main evidence base? What's the analytical work that sits behind that? What's the suitability and distribution of the police equipment that we have? What does safety training look like? What does the welfare support look like? And what does criminal justice outcomes look like? Now, what I will say is each of those areas do have specific National Police Chiefs Council leads of Chief Officer Rank. So I worked with those leads throughout that as well. We really wanted to get the voice of our officers and staff heard. What do they see the issues are? What do they see that they want us to look at and address those uh, proportionately? So that's what we did. Do Chief Officers or the National Police Chiefs Council, do they monitor and track the progress of your work and the work of the team? Because we spoke to Dave Brewster, who told us about the work that he does. Is this something that is tracked through the chief officers and was tracked through your work? There's 28 recommendations that were unanimously agreed by chief constables that I track on a monthly basis and I hold a meeting with the working group to make sure that there is that appropriate traction on those recommendations. Where the chief constables link into that is at chief's council, my chief constable will go and prepare a presentation and deliver that to chief constables to give them the information as to where we are against all those recommendations. Behind that, every chief constable has set up their own processes, their own governance and and scrutiny processes to look at all things officer staff safety. So that it will include the Operation Hampshire work that Dave Booster's leading on. It will also include where are they against the recommendations that the National Officer Staff Safety Review has highlighted. And they have got their own working group. Now, fairly recently, I asked for a snapshot of all forces to see 
at where they were in terms of that government. And I can sit here with confidence to say all 43 forces have put some kind of governance process into this, which assures me as just how seriously they are taking this issue. Sounds really promising. Where do we see this going next? What tangible benefits will officers and staff start to see as a result of this work? I want to make sure that officers and staff feel that they are being protected. I want them to feel that they've got better equipment, better training and better welfare processes in place. The only way I can do that is to ask officers and staff. I propose to hold regional focus groups with staff, but I want staff to feed back to us. What do they feel the difference is? And that's really important. The other avenue that we will use is through the Federation offices as well, which again is really important because I want to capture as many staff views as I possibly can. And so moving forward, are you aware of ways in which police officers and staff listening to this particularly might be able to get involved and have their say in this important work as it progresses into the future? There will be an officer staff safety lead, stroke op Hampshire lead. I would suggest that you ask your own force who that lead is, speak to that lead. The stuff that we've sent out to the relevant leads should be published within their own force. But also, I can speak for my force because obviously I'm within Kent. There should be the opportunity for individual members of staff to attend those boards and have a voice through those boards as well. But that's a starting point. Go see your leads. Look at what systems and processes your own force has got. And please, I encourage you to make sure you have a voice because you're the people that are on the street that can really help us with this. So one of the things that we've been hearing throughout this episode, Amanda, has been around individual forces and some of the challenges that they face around leadership and management at a local level. And I'm just wondering, because you're working on a national project, but you are a superintendent from Kent Police, are you recognising any individual needs from forces? Because we have 43 of them. Or do you believe that this issue of officer and staff safety is something that can be dealt with more broadly from a national perspective? And are there any themes coming out from officers that would support either of those? I think from a national perspective, I would say that the issues are the same. The type of assaults are the same. I mean, obviously, depending on your force area and the demographics of that force area will depend on the amount of assaults that are happening on officers and staff. There has been a lot already put in place by chief constables. I think that's important to note. And I think the differences that we've seen across the forces, if I took the seven-point plan uh, that officers will be familiar with, some forces were doing a seven-point plan, some were doing eight, some were doing nine. So there was that, that standard across the board, but it was like, how do we make sure that is a better standard and more consistency across the forces? I think it's fair to say there is some inconsistencies with leadership. We know there will be some good, bad and indifferent supervisors out there. We know that. So this officer staff safety work and the work of Operation Hampshire has brought in 
a, a minimum set of guidelines of what you should do to support your staff. And we mustn't forget the work that Oscar Kilo are doing as well uh, and the work through Chief Constable Rose portfolio as well in wellbeing. So I think we're really bringing up that standard now. Uh, I'd like to think forces really look intrusively at the support that officers and staff are given from their line managers. Amanda, you talk about the work that is going on and it's clearly something that you are passionate about. And as an operational superintendent back in Kent Police as well, has this national work opened your eyes to things that maybe you didn't realise before in your own role around the work and the impact that this has on operational police officers and staff? All of my service has been uniformed. So I have been a response officer and sergeant and inspector, and I've been involved in public order throughout all those ranks as well. But I haven't been assaulted and and, and I've been fortunate. What it's really opened my eyes up to is, do you know what? Being assaulted is absolutely not part of the job. We should not tolerate being assaulted and we should do everything we can to hold offenders to account for the assaults that they've committed against our officers and staff. The biggest thing for me, I would say, is the amount of officers that have kind of been assaulted and what they would say is a fairly low-level assault and they've kind of brushed it off. Well, it's not acceptable. We're the police. We're there to protect and serve. So no level of assault is acceptable at all. Amanda, thank you very much for sharing with us some of your own story, but also more importantly, everything that you're doing, both as an individual and as part of a team to ensure that our officers and staff in the future get the best care, particularly during those times when they really do need us the most. I'd just like to thank the project team that worked with me in this review. It was a massive review. There was a lot of hours put into this. So thank you to the team. Thank you to all those officers and staff that took part in the survey. Over 40,000 recipients, which is really good. But most of all, I want to say thank you to all those frontline officers and staff that go out there day in, day out, do a really tough, difficult job in the most extreme circumstances. So thank you and well done. And that is all we have time for today, folks. Thanks for joining me. If you want to find out more about officer safety and the initiatives raised in today's episode, please check out the links in the show notes. You can also find us by visiting our official College of Policing website, which is college.police.uk, or following us on Twitter at College of Police. But for now, I hope you stay safe and I'll see you all soon.